Turn in your Bibles back to the book of Revelation as we hope to finish the first chapter this week. Revelation 1 and verses 12 to 20. Now I struggled with outlining this section. It's really a difficult section to outline. Fundamentally, we're going to see there's three things about Christ, his identity in verses 12 and 13, his description, verses 14 to 16, and then we're going to have to back up or else perhaps we could even just keep going and say in verse 20 you have his location. So he's described, he's identified as the son of man. He's described in various ways. But the main point of it is his location, where he's located. And we'll see that in verse 13 and verse 20. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You can see, brethren, the importance of interpreting the book figuratively. This is figurative language. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So thankfully we find in verse 20, at least in part, the inspired interpretation of the vision, or at least two key aspects of the vision. Now to fully understand the imagery in this passage, we must first of all be familiar with with the old covenant temple worship. This is temple imagery. Our Savior here is described as the priest, the high priest of his people, ministering within his new covenant church or churches or lampstand. And he's fundamentally doing within the new covenant church what the old covenant priest did in the old covenant temple. As we see, he's filling the candles, the the lampstands with oil, and he's trimming their wick that they might bright, that they might uh, shine brightly. So we find Christ here described in a most wonderful way as the priest, but also as the king of his church, 
many of these symbols underscore his royalty. So he's the royal priest. He's king and priest in the midst of his church. That's how he's described. And thus I want to consider, as I've said, three things about him. First, his identity. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw, and then he goes on to say, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is priestly, these are priestly garments. Now, to be fair, some have suggested they're more reflective of royal garments, but uh, it's really taken out of Old Testament texts that describe the high priestly garments. I wouldn't fight anybody if they wanted to say this is royal gar- these are royal garments, because as we're going to see, he's both king and priest. But it's rather evident that it's taken from the Old Testament And it describes or portrays him here as our high priest. And in verse 13, again, he's described uh, as one like the Son of Man. And this, of course, is language that's borrowed from the book of Daniel. In a couple key passages in Daniel, you have the Messiah described like one who's the son of man. And you know that Jesus oftentimes referred to himself as the son of man throughout the gospels. Let me just quote to you one text, for example. Probably this one John has in mind, Daniel seven thirteen. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So this one who's in Daniel 7, we find now is in Revelation 1. It's the same person. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And that's in part why some have suggested that the garments reflect more uh, that of a king than priest because of the imagery of Daniel 7. And that's, again, possible. If you remember, Daniel received a vision which depicted four great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then we have one introduced in the mix, a fifth kingdom that outdoes the other four. Because in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, it describes his kingdom as having no end in contrast to the other four kingdoms. In other words, in the midst of the fourth kingdom, that is when Rome was at its height, Jesus would come and establish his kingdom. But his kingdom wouldn't be an outward kingdom. It would be an inward kingdom. It would be a spiritual kingdom, which will result ultimately in being established in the whole earth, in the four corners of the world. But it starts off modestly and and in a small way, and it starts off spiritually in the hearts of men. Nevertheless, we find that Jesus here is described as the Messiah, as the one whose kingdom is eternal. And then secondly, notice his description of verse 14 uh, to 16. John actually describes this one in a sevenfold way. And 
Again, we have to interpret this description as figurative, not literal. It's figurative, and yet it's intentional. It, it intentionally teaches us something about Jesus. So each of these seven imageries, while not literally true of him, they teach us something actually true of him. And let's go through them very quickly. First, his hair, his head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. Now, I think this probably underscores the fact that he's infinitely wise. The scriptures oftentimes speak of the hoary head, the one with gray hair, as being wise. Normally, the older you live, the grayer your hair becomes and the wiser you become. In fact, if you go back to uh, Daniel 7, the Messiah, the one like the Son of Man, comes before the throne of his father, who's described as the Ancient of Days. And again, Ancient of Days is just a term that it, at least in part describes God the Father as infinitely wise. And so here we find that the Son is described in a similar way. He's described as wise. Secondly, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And I think this means that he has the ability to look into the hearts of men. His eyes are like flames of fire. Man can only, as we saw recently in our David study, see on the outside. God looks on the inside. By the way, I forgot to mention, too, that all seven of these descriptions of Christ here, almost all of them, are repeated in the seven letters to the churches. So really, this is kind of a summary introduction to those seven letters. And again and again in those seven letters, Jesus speaks of himself as knowing their deeds. He knows his churches. Why? Because he has, he has eyes like fire, flames of fire. He's able to look not just at the outside of the church or the outside of the people like we do, but he pierces down into the very hearts and souls of men. Thirdly, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. I think this probably underscores his infinite purity and righteousness. He's a righteous king. He's a pure king. He's a just king, as we'll see in a moment. Fourthly, his voice was like the sound of many waters. That is, his voice was powerful. It was, to use an older term, Awesome. His voice was awesome, powerful, majestic. And then we find, fifthly, in his right hand were seven stars. Now I want to come back to this, but we find in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So that doesn't help us out a whole lot other than the term you might know translated angel is a term that simply means messenger. Angels are messengers from God. And, and in fact, we'll see each of the seven letters in chapters two and three are addressed to the angel in that church. 
Brethren, I don't believe, and in fact, I don't know really of any sane, trustworthy commentary who maintains that this refers to literal angels. It's certainly possible, or in fact, it's a biblical truth, isn't it, that angels are real beings, spiritual beings, sent to minister to those who will inherit eternal life. So we believe that. But I think here, a letter is not written to an angel. It's written to the man who's going to read the letter to the congregation. So it's likely a reference to the elders of the church, the ministers of the church. Ministers, as we'll see in a minute, are messengers. And they're sent from God to preach the good news of the gospel. In fact, later on in the book of Revelation, we find an angel who preaches the everlasting gospel to the whole world. Well, angels don't preach nothing. They can't. But men do. And so as we'll get to that text later in Revelation, it's just, I think, a similar statement to this. And it's just saying that God, in and through his ministers, particularly is preaching the gospel. And here I think by angel is met the messengers or the ministers within the seven churches. Now some have used this text to prove that every church should only have one minister. But I don't think personally this is the point. I think it's just simply saying that there was a minister in each church and ideally there's more than one minister in each church. There's a plurality of elders. But nevertheless, the point being is, brethren, he has the leadership of the church in his right hand. Now, his right hand is that of power. Now, I think as we'll see in a minute, because I want to come back to this, it underscores the fact that he's protecting the whole church, but in particular, the leadership of the church, and he's controlling them. They derive their power from him. He has the Seven angels, the stars, the seven angels of the seven churches in, the, in his right hand. And then finally, out of, and, I, and, I, and one reason why I want to say that is because of the connection between that and the next phrase. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We're going to see that Jesus as king in his church rules and reigns through his eldership. And they have authority insofar as they preach what? His word. And I think this is what is mentioned, is meant here by this sword. In fact, if you just look in the, probably the second letter, which is chapter 2, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, see John was to write the letter to the angel, I think the minister, the leaders of the church in Pergamos. And then notice, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In other words, the letter, though it was authored by John, it's really from Jesus. And uh, notice what he says. For, and then he talks about in verses 13, 14, and 15, how there's some good things they're doing and some bad things they're doing. Now, with reference to the bad things, he says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And uh, how does Jesus 
fight against rebels in his church. Probably a reference to the false teachers mentioned in verse 15, the Nicolaitans. Well, he does so through his word, brother, and he surely doesn't do so literally. We don't believe, contrary to some, that heretics should be stoned or killed. But they ought to be dealt with in and with the word. And the word is what judges everything, brother. And I think that's in part why it has two sides to it. One to wound and the other to heal. To encourage the people, to protect the people, and to also address those who would seek to teach error. And so we've seen already his identity. He's the one that Daniel foretold who would have a kingdom uh, that would never end. He's described in this sevenfold way, largely in terms of his kingly office. Okay? I think we could probably take uh, each of those seven and uh, in some way or another apply them to his kingly office. So he's described as a king. And I think that's the whole point of why John here alludes back to Daniel 7, 13. Because this king is given a kingdom that will never end. And here he's described as a king in the midst. Never forget this, brother. It's the whole point of the passage. In the midst of his churches. He functions as a king in his church. Brother, this is a it's a tremendous passage. The whole point here is to encourage these seven churches who are being mistreated. You're being despised and mistreated, but guess what? You're not alone. I mean, it's an encouragement, isn't it? To have somebody to go through the difficulty with. You have a wife, you have a husband, you have a sibling, you have a friend, you have a parent. You have brethren in a church to go through the difficulty together. It helps us, it encourages us, but brethren, what's all that in comparison to having Jesus in our midst? That's the point. Yes, your enemies are destroying you and defeating you and dragging you off and killing you, but Jesus as king is in your midst. And he's also there as priest, as we really come to see more so under our third point, his location. And his location is identified in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And then verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. In other words, these seven churches are described as seven golden lampstands. Why golden? Well, because the lampstand in the Old Testament temple was made out of gold. And it underscored the fact that the church is meaningful to Jesus. It's not, these lampstands aren't made of, of brass, silver. They're made out of gold. And I think it also underscores the purity that he intends for the church. 
And then look in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Brother, there's a sense in which when these seven letters are read in these seven churches, Jesus, by the Spirit, in and through the Word, is in the midst of the church. He's there by and through His Word. He's in the midst of His seven golden lampstands. Now, if you recall, within the Old Covenant temple... There was a golden lampstand that had seven arms which burned brightly night and day. And it was a responsibility of the priest to ensure that the lampstand never went out. And that, and as I've said already, that would necessitate them to do two things. To replenish the oil daily and to trim the wicks. And they did that... I think, in the first place, or uh, that lampstand gave light day and night in the first place to afford the priests light that they could perform their other priestly duties. Otherwise, it would have been dark in them. But I think for mostly, it was typical of the fact that God, by the Holy Spirit, fills his church and enables them to be as light to the world. Remember, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so the church is the light of the world. They're the light of the world as they set forth Christ, who is essentially the light of the world. So if you remember, there were two rooms in the Old Covenant Temple. And so when you came into the first room, it was the larger of the two. There were fundamentally three things inside that room. There was a table with bread on it. There was the seven-armed golden lampstand. And then there was a smaller altar that burned incense. And if you remember, the high priest carried that with him beyond the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. But otherwise, the other, every other day of the year, it stayed in the big room. So there were three things in there. There was a table with bread on it. There was the lampstand that burned day and night. And there was incense. Brethren, that's a beautiful picture of what happens in the church. What, what, is, what, what goes on in the church? There's the word. That's the bread. There's the Holy Spirit illuminating illuminating the word. That's the lampstand. And then there's prayers in the church. That's the incense. That, really, that's fun. I mean, if you think about it, that's just a beautiful, simple way to describe what the church is and what the church ought to do. You can keep your money. You don't need to go buy a book on what the church is and what the church should do. Just come right here to Revelation 1, verses 12 to 20. Or even go to the Old Testament and find that in that first room there were those three things. And thus there to be three things fundamentally in the church. There's the Word, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's prayers. Perhaps I can put it like this. We pray to the Holy Spirit to bless the Word. 
That's, that's what's going on there. And then, of course, beyond the veil was the throne room. That's where God dwelt. And he dwells in his church as king. So uh, uh, perhaps I can put it like this. I, I, I suggest there's two fundamental reasons the church is likened to a lampstand. One, because the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the scriptures teach us that the church collectively, 1 Corinthians 3, and individually, 1 Corinthians 6, are the dwelling place of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills us just as the oil filled the, the lampstand. And the Holy Spirit never leaves us. And Christ is in our midst replenishing us with the Holy Spirit. He's filling us with the Spirit, brethren. That's what he's doing essentially in the seven letters. Through his word, he's rebuking them. He's encouraging them. He's correcting them. In short, he's sanctifying them. He's filling them with the Spirit. He's replenishing his churches with oil. And so, in the second reason, um, the first is because it's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the second is, It's to thus serve as light, not only for the church. The church is is not only the place where the Holy Spirit illuminates the word, but as the Holy Spirit illuminates that word to the church, the church is to take the light into the darkness of this world. And again, you see the superior nature of the new covenant as opposed to the old. In the old covenant, there was a lampstand in a dark room giving it light. In the new covenant, there's more than one lampstand or church because there's seven of them here. There's churches scattered all throughout the world. And they're not just to illuminate themselves, brethren, but they're sent out to illuminate the world. Or they're sent out to be the light To the world. And so Revelation 1 verses 12 to 20. Describe the church as the new covenant temple. With Christ dwelling. And or walking. Within our midst. Alright so let me summarize it with these observations. Observation 1. Christ alone rules or reigns in his church. He reigns by his word through his ministers. And again, you find that, don't you, in verse 15. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. I think I forgot the last phrase, didn't I, at, at 16? And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. Countenance, of course, is just another way of saying his face. His face was shining. I think, remember the benediction where we believe God is causing his face to shine upon us at the end of our meetings? I think this is the idea. It's, it's something very encouraging and positive. It's betraying Christ. As the most glorious of all beings. His countenance was like the sun shining at noonday. That's what it means in its strength. 
In other words, he's there more, he's there in the church, brethren, most gloriously, and he's causing his grace and his mercy to shine upon his people. And that's why ministers for 2,000 years have closed the meetings with benedictions similar to the one that we typically use from number six. Let's speak of God causing his face to shine upon us. That's, I think, why it ends with that one. That, that seventh description, all right? So go back now, sorry about that, to the first observation. Christ alone rules or reigns in his church. And first of all, he rules by his word. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And he rules through his ministers. He had in his right hand seven stars. This means, brethren, that he not only protects his ministers. And surely this would have been a big encouragement to all the ministers in these seven churches. But he also controls his ministers. Because remember, Jesus himself said that in one sense, all of the church, not just the minister, is in his hand. Remember, he said that uh, no one can snatch them from my hand. That means he protects them. But here I think the direct thing, the, the point is, he not only protects his angels or ministers, but he controls them. That is, the authority that they have is an authority given to them by Christ. Because he's the king. He rules in his church. And he rules in his church through his word by his ministers. Uh, in another, another way of putting it would be like this. The only authority the minister has is when he sets before the people Jesus' word. He doesn't have any authority outside of that. Now that doesn't mean he can't give his opinion. It doesn't mean that he can't say, well, this is what we do. But when he gives his opinion, he needs to let the people know, this is my opinion. Now, I can't say that this is a necessity, brethren, but this is what we do, and this is why. That's my opinion. And I have one, and you have one. And we can all express them. But when the minister says, thus says the Lord... When he stands up in the pulpit especially and he faithfully exegetes and applies the, the Holy Scriptures, brethren, he speaks, he speaks as the mouthpiece of Christ himself. This is how Christ rules in his church. Through his word, by his ministers. And then a second observation. Christ, as a royal priest, dwells in his church. And in some sense, brethren, this is kind of the whole point. Christ himself rules or reigns in the church as a royal priest. That is, he instructs them, he rules them, he protects them, he sanctifies them. He cleanses them. 
He encourages them. He encourages them all as a royal priest. And that's exactly what he's doing in the seven letters that we're going to begin to examine next week. But really you find both of these concepts, priest, king, blended together in verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That speaks of his priestly activity. Remember, as the priest, he not only offers a sacrifice, but is that sacrifice. And then the next phrase, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. That speaks of him as a king. And this is really a description, a summary description of the whole passage, verses 12 to 20, and in some sense of the whole book of Revelation. In other words, it describes him here as a royal priest. Notice first, he was dead, but now lives forever. Brother, I don't even know how to begin to explain this phrase. I am he who lives. Okay, so he's alive. And yet he was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. What does that mean? It means this. He lived for us. He died for us. And now he intercedes for us. All of that's in that little phrase. I lived. He lived perfectly in our place. He perfectly obeyed the law. In word, deed, and thought. He lived. He, brethren, we do know this, right? That it's not just Jesus' death that saves us. It's all of his work, which includes his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his session, and his ongoing intercession at the right hand of the Father. And all of that's implied in this. I was alive, I lived in your stead, I was dead, I died in your place, and now I've risen again, and I am alive now forevermore. Never to, never again to die. And so we don't, when we preach the gospel, we have to be careful that we don't preach Jesus as if he's still dead. This is how we preach the gospel. We preach it like this. You have to come to the one who lived, who died, and now lives forevermore. You have to come to the one who was dead, but now lives forevermore. In other words, you have to come to the one who lived perfectly, fulfilling the law, and died sacrificially, appeasing God's wrath, and raised victorious over all of his enemies. And that's what he means when he says, I have the keys of Hades. By Hades is probably meant the grave and of death. When he came out of that grave, brethren, he came out of that grave victorious. He was given by his father the keys of heaven and earth, or here, the keys of Hades and death. He defeated the grave. He defeated death. How did he defeat the grave? How did he defeat death? He defeated them through his death. It was by his death that he defeated death. And I think the whole point here is is that, look, you're being mistreated. You're being maligned. You're being hated. You're being persecuted. You're being put to death. Fear not, Jesus as king is ruling and reigning in the church, in your midst, 
And fear not, because what can they do? All they can do is kill the body. All they can do is, all your enemies can do, I think this is the point, is send you to Jesus. Fear not the one who can merely kill the body. Jesus has the keys of the grave and of death. And so if your enemies kill you, your body will go to the ground. And one day, because he rose from the dead, you too shall rise from the dead. And you arise from the dead as Jesus, never to die again. And then a final observation is this. Christ must be rightly feared within his church. And here again I'm thinking, uh, obviously, of John's response in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. In other words, while John's response was proper, he fell at the feet of the one that's in the vision. He fell at the feet of his king and high priest. There was in his response a measure of of carnality. There was something in his response that Jesus corrects. And it's found in that phrase, do not be afraid. You see, brethren, we have to make this distinction between gospel fear, which is everywhere commanded and commended, and being afraid. You see, the difference is fundamentally this. You're afraid of something that you don't know. Something that's possibly out of control. You don't know how they can respond. Let me just use this as an example. You get pulled over, let's say unjustly, and you're afraid. Because the police can do what he wants to do, virtually, with limitations. You're afraid. You ought to be. Somebody you don't know comes knocking at your door. And he has a rifle in his hand. And he's knocking angrily at your door. Wow, well, you're pretty afraid. You don't know who this guy is. And you don't know what he's capable of. Brethren, that's not the kind of fear that is commanded or commended with regards to the Christian. We know who he is. We fear him because we know what he can do. We know why he'll do it and to whom. But we're not afraid. We're not afraid. But we're fearful of him. Two different things. 
And that's why Jesus is reminding him, don't be afraid, John. I'm, you, I'm, this is who I am. I'm God. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who lived for you. I'm the one who died for you. I'm the one that rose again. I have the keys of Hades and death. Don't be afraid of me. Brother, that's what Jesus says to him. Don't be afraid of me. Remember what I said uh, some weeks ago when we, when we were finishing our study of Proverbs? And I said at the very heart of gospel fear, Christian fear that's commended, is the knowledge of God. Right? Remember we saw that? To fear God is to know God. And brethren, when you know God, you will fear God. But you won't be afraid of God. And that's a very big difference. And so how is the church to view Christ? Well, they're to view him as he's here revealed. And brethren, when we gather, especially on his day, to worship him in his way, we ought to bow before him. By the way, John is going to bow two more times in the book of Revelation. The other two times he bows, he bows wrongly before the angel that's giving him the information. And in both of those instances, the angel says, don't bow to me, don't worship me, worship the one I'm telling you about. So we can put it all together and end with this. This is how we're to respond to this vision. We're to come into his house and we're to be so exceedingly filled with joy and encouragement because we come to worship our king and high priest who lived, died, and rose again for us. And yet he's also our king. And we ought to bow our humble hearts at his feet and adore him and worship him with gospel or Christian fear. That's what the passage tells us. Let me show you this from a hymn that I want to sing. Look at hymn 271. How sweet and awe-filled, awful, is the place. See, the seven churches, the seven golden lampstands of Revelation are here described as a sweet and awful place where Christ is within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. Let's stand and sing together. Hymn 271. Oh, I'm sorry, who was that? Yeah, I wanted to observe something about the refiner's fire that Christ's eyes were like the refiner's fire and then there's another scripture that says he is like a refiner's fire. So we are getting refined by his eyes. That's true. Good, good point, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, brother. All right, let's stand and close our devotional time by singing hymn 271.